So, we, we have been studying this book called 1 Corinthians. This is a letter that Paul, this guy, about 2,000 years ago, written to some of the first ever Christians that ever studied. So they start get together, and really, some of you think, when you think of church, church is big cathedral, and priest up ahead, and a sitting, and um, very organized, and all the liturgy, and all of that, and people dressed in nice clothes, and you know, their Sunday best, that's where it comes from, go to church, and all of that, but when church actually first started, 2,000 years ago, and this, and that's the group that Paul is talking to, this group of Christians in a city called Corinth, which is a Greek city, a bunch of them, and they met just like this. They met at home. Uh, Some churches were like us, you know, 20 people, 30 people. Some met in a really big house. Um, They had, you know, up to like 50, 60 people, 70 people. I think that we can fit 40 people in here. What do you think? You can feed a few in the back, we some in the front. Maybe. Um, yeah, hey, hey, some of you guys are part of Young Life. Young Life, in this size, we can probably feed about 100 people if this was Young Life, Young Life Club. So, we could do it. Uh, but my point is, that's kind of how the church was. People came to home, met at home, because church wasn't so much of religion, but it was just people who want to learn about Jesus coming and learning together and encouraging each other and um, sharing each other's you know, hard times, good times, and all of that. So Paul is writing a letter to this group of Christians, the first of bunch, um, and how to do things. And they were not a very good Christian. They did all sorts of bad stuff. They didn't know what was going on. They were trying to mix what they learned from the world into what they learned from the Bible, and it didn't come out all right. It came, came all mixed up, and they, they thought they knew it, but they didn't. They thought they were doing good, but they weren't really doing good. So Paul's writing a letter to this group of Christians. This is how it is. But the way he started is, I, one time I met with, um, with Young Life, I met with this guy who was struggling with drugs, right? Um, but he didn't tell me he was tr- struggling with drugs. I heard, and everybody knew he was struggling with drugs. Right? I said, hey, you want to get together? Um, go get tapioca, whatever. And I met with him, and uh, he said, hey, I have some questions. And he was asking me some of the questions, like some issues with school, issues with like his girlfriend and family issues and all of that. But I wanted to talk to him about his drug issues. Right? This is really bad for you. We need to talk about this because this is a place that you can't, you should not go. But he has other questions. So it's kind of the same. Paul, to these people, he heard from everywhere they have a bad problems. They're divided each other, with each other. There were some sick, immoral, you know, sins going on. Um, they were arguing about food. They were, you know, there was a whole bunch of stuff going wrong. That was terrible. But they wrote him a letter. They wrote him a letter asking about, hey, what do we do with this marriage thing, divorce thing? What do we eat? What are we, what are we supposed to eat? And what are we supposed to not eat? And all this regular stuff. But Paul knew that they were trying to hide things that were real dangerous for them. So what we saw so far, and you're going to see that we are in chapter 7, the big number, how the Bible, in the book, each book is divided. Up until chapter 7 was Paul talking about this dangerous stuff. He was talking about, you went there, you should not have gone there, let's talk about that first. And today... He finally gets to the questions that they ask, which is, you know, really not embarrassing for them to ask. It's like, oh, what do we do about these things? So he answers them because if you see it, it says, now concerning the matters which 
about which you wrote. So he's going to answer some questions that they have asked, and that's what we're going to talk about today. As you can see, I could not put anything else on this double-sided page. It's all 40 verses. What? It's a lot of stuff. You'll be sitting here for a couple of hours. I am kidding. I'm going to try to make it as short as humanly possible in going through this. Um, but here's what we're going to do. We're going to read this together. And the way we read it is I read one verse and you read the next together in unison. And, uh, and I'll pray and we'll go through this together. And, um, and it'll be fun. Be good times. Okay. Here we go. So I'm going to do verse 1 and you read verse 2 and so forth. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is well for a man not to touch a woman. The husband should keep um, their me and there's, you know, what is your name? Nikki. <laughs> <laughs> Nikki and you, Esther and Esther's uh, sister, that's Sunny and uh, and Eddie and Daniela and. Uh, we're only married couple. There's soon to be married. Um, so, but this the whole thing today is going to be a lot about marriage. So you may not relate that so well, but it's coming for most of you. So uh, pay attention, right? The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a set time to devote yourselves in pray to prayer and then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I wish that all were as myself am, but each has a particular gift from God, one having one kind and another a different kind. But if they are not practicing self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry man to be aflame with passion. But if she does separate, let her remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. And if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. But if the unbelieving, par unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such, in such a case, the brother or sister is not bound. It is to peace that God has called you. However that may be, let each of you lead a life that the Lord has assigned, to which God called you. This is my rule in all the churches. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing, but obeying the commandments of God is everything. Were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. Even if you can gain your freedom, make use of your present condition now more than ever. 
You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of human masters. In whatever condition you were called, brothers and sisters, there remain with God. Everyone with me? Okay. Now, concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord, but I give my opinion as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that you any crisis, it is well for you to remain as you are. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you marry, you do not sin, and if a virgin marries, she does not sin. Yet those who marry will experience distress in this life, and I will spare you from that. I mean, brothers and sisters, the appointed time has grown short. From now on, let even those who have wives be as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties, and the married man is anxious about the affairs of the Lord, how to praise the Lord. But the married man is anxious about the affairs of the world, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided, and the unmarried man and the virgin are anxious about the affairs of the Lord, so that they may be holy in body and spirit. But the married man is anxious about the affairs of the world, how to I say this for your own benefit, not to put any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and unhindered devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly towards his fiancée, his potentials are strong, so it has to be, let him marry to which is no sin, let him But if anyone stands firm in his resolve, being under no necessity, but having his own desire under control, and has determined in his own mind to keep her as his fiancée, he will do well. So then, he who marries his fiancée does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do better. A wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if the husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, only in the Lord. But in my judgment, she is more blessed to marry than she is, and I think that I too have spirits by my Word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your teaching. We thank you for someone like Paul who would give us good advices. We thank you for the leaders we have. We pray that the words that we have read can be understood by the help of your Spirit, that it will be convicting and we will all be encouraged as to learn your grace and love that you have offered. In Jesus' name, Amen. amen. Well, that's a lot of stuff, huh? Yeah. Um, we could probably go through a few weeks with what we just read, but we're going to do it all in just today, okay? Um, what are your thoughts? You heard a lot of stuff. There's like married stuff, marriage between man and woman, there's a conjugal rights, there's the virgins, there's like, you know, circumcision, and does anybody not know what circumcision is? Raise your hand if you don't. Okay, good. Everyone does. Randy, let me show you. Okay, um, there's stuff about slavery, uh, you know, the end of the world type of talk, and there's a whole lot of stuff here. Any thoughts? Any Anything that stood out to you? Well, let's skip this pause, <laughs> awkward silence. Let's go right into it, okay? Paul is saying a lot of stuff, but Paul is also not saying certain things we think he's saying. Some of these verses are known to 
be used by Christians with false understanding to be used for their own benefits, for their own purpose. So we want to understand what Paul is exactly saying and what he's not saying. So you look at verse 1 through 5, so it's best for you to kind of track down, track along um, what I'm going through here. Verse 1, it says, It is well for a man not to touch a woman. He's quoting what they said in their letter. And verse 2, he said, Each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. So there's two words here. He says touch, you know, and have. And basically, it's a subtle way of saying something else. Something, you know, something more. So Paul's not saying, man should not touch woman. That's not what he's saying. Paul is not saying, every man should have wife and vice versa. Every woman should have husband. That's not exactly what he's saying. He's actually talking about sex. So, have and touch is, you know, subtle reference for sex. So, Paul is also saying some wonderful things here, as you heard, especially men, maybe, that we get the conjugal rights, right? And that we own each other's bodies and, you know, and all of that, which sounds really good, right? Which sounds, oh, wow, Paul says these things, these are great stuff. But we have to be careful, because if we misunderstood, we can abuse what he said here. For example, we can abuse the whole conjugal right thing, right? You know, you go to your husband and your wife, most of you are married, but if you are, you wanna, you're tempted to say, hey, Bible says that I have my conjugal rights, right? You, you can force each other into, or, you know, you take this idea about um, owning each other's body, so you start making, criticizing each other, if you're a married couple, hey, you should do this, you should dress in this way, um, Esther tried to dress me in like polos and khakis <laughs> and banana stuff, and I don't dress like that, right? That's, I dress my own way. So, you know, people can abuse if you misunderstand. You should look this way, you should dress this way, you should act this way uh, for me because I own you. I own your bodies. But that's not what it means. Or take the whole marriage things negatively because you read this, it's easy for us to come up and think, oh, marriage is really negative, right? Because Paul says to avoid sexual immorality or, you know, Satan may tempt you because of your lack of self-control, we must marry and have sex. So, I think that's a bad reason to get married, right? I can't control my hormones or whatever, so I better get married. Um, in verse 9, he said, But if they are practicing self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to be aflame with passion. Uh, I had this guy, some of you know him, he's, he, he kept telling me that, Damn, I know I'm going to get married because I have no self-control. It's not something you tell others, people, that I need to get married because I have no self-control. It's just bad reason to get married for. Why are you getting married? Because I need to have sex. And I need to have a wife. Um, or a husband. Right? That's just a bad reason. It puts negative spin on the whole marriage thing. Right? So this is an example of what we're dealing with here in this text. And, uh, and there's a whole bunch more as we read. So we need to know in this what Paul is not saying so that we don't misunderstand. But we need to know what Paul is actually saying and his re- what, what is he really talking about here. Because there's a lot of stuff we can misunderstand. So, let me give you three points to understand this better. First, everything here, except for one occasion, one thing he said, is not a command or a law or, as we say it in young life, strong encouragement um, from God. It's just Paul's opinions. Um, his suggestions. So up to this point, like I said, he had like warnings and almost a very, very strong suggestion, 
said, don't do this. This is sin. This is wrong. This is bad. But now his tone has changed. But it's not to be taken lightly or ignored because, you know, Paul's a well-learned guy. He's saying these things with biblical understanding, theological reflections, and his experience as, as pastor. So every word is in Bible is written. So we want to take this word seriously. Plus, Paul, when it comes to Christianity, he's the best guy. He's the, one of the best guys to get answers from. He's like, you know, what's that guy with Apple design? The one who has British, British accent. Well, Steve Jobs and that guy with the British accent. Um, the design guru. Like Steve, you know, if you want to ask anything about technology, design, there's a guy, number one guy who knows the most, right? So Paul's that guy. So we don't want to ignore him. We actually want to listen to what he has to say. But we need to understand, it's not the law to be used to condemn or control people. It's just suggestion and opinion. And that's what he says. He repeats over and over. It says verse 6, This I say by way of concession, not of command. Verse 12, he says, To the rest I say, I am not the Lord. Verse 17, This is my rule in all the churches. My rule, not God's rule. Verse 25, Now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord, but I give my opinion. So, Everything that Paul is saying here, except for one occasion, is his opinion, his suggestion, his advice. So, first of all, take these as a wise teaching from Paul on how to apply to life. Specifically here, about marriage and sex. So, secondly, the whole chapter is about men and women. Single or married, divorced or remarried type issues. Um, even in verse 17 to 24, you guys go there? Verse 17 to 24, it's talking about circumcision and slavery but he's applying that just as an example or an extension of his point for which he's drawing another picture for his readers he's saying this thing because in other letters he wrote in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek there is neither slave nor free there is no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus so he's giving more details into what he's talking about but his focus is what? Man and woman about marriage and sex. So he's focusing on that. Um, so third, lastly, the whole book is about Corinthians, these people, the first Christians in Corinth, behaving badly in a world that's very much like San Francisco, um, a big city with lots of options, lots of status, lots of pressure, lots of you know chances and lots of sin and lots of stuff, right? So he's talking to these people who are really behaving badly, who's got one foot in the church and the other in the world, um, who's immature, who's, who's, who's rationalizing things, who's arrogant, who's greedy, just like us. That's us, right? Myself included. Just like us, who are struggling with these things in a big city. So Paul's teaching so far, the first six chapters has been, look at the cross of Jesus. And then carry you on own, your own cross like me. That's been his teaching. He's saying that be different from the world. Be upside down. Be counterculture. Because God has called us to live life with new identity and new relationship. Be different. And that's what the Corinthians were struggling. And these are the issues that they've been asking. So Paul is pointing out the same old thing that Corinthians are struggling with in this section. Stuff like sex and marriage. But these are conflicts on the surface. There's something that runs more deep. 
There's something that needs to be understood in the deeper level to tackle these things. And that's what Paul is going to point out. So, for example, what we just went through from verse 1 through 5, here's what's going, really going on. Right? In previous sections, if you were here, like Chris was here a couple of Sundays ago, we talked about like this guy who's sleeping with his you know, stepmother and you know, we need to kick him out of church and all of that. Some really hard stuff we were talking about. Um, but up to this point, uh, a bunch of liberals, and Paul was talking to a bunch of liberals saying, hey, anything goes. We can do whatever we want. We can, have, we can do and have pleasure with whatever, whoever we want. Now, he's referring to a bunch of people, conservatives, who are saying, no, we don't do anything, even if we're married, no sex, no touching women, nothing. So, he's tackling, in this verse 1 through 5, People who are saying spirituality and sexuality are incompatible. And what they're saying is like, you know, we got to be like a monk. Or Knights of the Watch, right? Games of Throne, right? Oh. <laughs> you can't have sex or be with women. You need to be focused, right? Can't have sex and be spiritual at the same time. That's what they're saying. So because of what these guys are saying, whole bunch of people in the church, married couple, stop having sex. Which is terrible, right? I mean, it's terrible for me if that was something I had to do, put up with, right? Um, so, he's saying, but those who are not having sex, what are they going to do? Especially men in a city like Corinth? They have other options, right? They have other options to go to, as, especially if you have, you know, no self-control. So, Paul, referring to those, you know, um, people are saying, he's clarifying and correcting them, saying, you're hearing all these things, these are wrong stuff, you know? So what he's saying is, go ahead. If you're married, you have a husband and you have a wife, go get busy, right? Go get busy. Sex doesn't make you less spiritual, right? He's, that's what he's saying. He said, you guys are, you're all idiots, because if you stop having sex, and you have no less self-control, then you'll be more tempted, this is a bad thing for you. And also, he's affirming something about marriage. Saying some great things. He says, sex between married couple is awesome. And it is, right? It is. And we've been talking about that a little bit in the past couple of weeks. Uh, he's also saying, each spouse is responsible for your bodies, for the other. This is a good thing. right? I, I want to encourage you guys, young people in your 20s and 10, you know, teenagers... You know, you want to grow up and have you a spouse, husband and wife, to look good, right? And that's your responsibility. Paul's talking about some discipline between the married couple. Look good, be in shape, be desirable, right? Be ready to satisfy your husband or your wife, right? And he's saying sex is a gift that each other gives in marriage. It's a great thing. And he's also saying total equality between husband and wife which something Christians are not for. Christians, we believe in total equality between men and women, and husband and wife. And Paul is affirming some of those. So, this is how we deal with this text. And what we learn, what we get, um, is a whole, whole lot more. So, let me just list out and summarize some of the things Paul is not saying, and he's saying. So, I'm not going to go through the way we did it. That was just to give you an example. Let me just list out some of the things he's not saying, and what he's really saying. Paul is not saying that people should be single. That's not what he's saying. right? He's not saying that marriage is terrible. There's part that he says, if you're married, then 
you have all this stress and anxiety and all of that, so it's better if you're not married. He's not saying that, right? He's not saying, oh, be like me because I'm single and it's great to be single. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying, um, if you're a slave, just remain slave because God can use you as a slave. That's not what he's saying. Say, so don't try to be free if you're a slave. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying, um, you know, just try to be religious, try to follow, um, get a, you know, circumcision is, you know, nothing, you don't have to care anything about that. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying, if you're married and if you have a fiancé, um, then dump your fiancé or get married quick. He's not giving any kind of specific examples. What he's saying is, is that we have options. He's saying we have options. Be wise but know what's going on. Know what's going on in your surroundings so we use our options wisely. And not only that, we apply our situation and decisions we need to make in a thought that is reflected in the gospel and that pleases God. So you look at their world. What kind of world are they living in? Let me draw a picture of what's going on here. The world, the first century in Corinth is world full of status quo and pressure to fit in, especially social pressure for marriage. Uh, it, Game of Thrones, or you watch any other like movies of a Greek society or Roman Empire, everybody gets married. Like As soon as you're divorced or widowed, you get married again, because it's, it's, there's a huge social pressure to be married. That's what Paul is dealing with, with these people. These people have to be married, have to be remarried, so much that once you lose your husband or divorce, and divorce was common as it is now today at this time, Everyone's asking, well, who are you going to marry? There's these people. Your house will be great with this house. That's all what they're saying, right? So much that when you turn like 13, 12, you already have someone that you're going to marry to. You have fiancé. That's actually what Paul is saying here. You have fiancé who's like a little girl, right? Hold off. Wait until the fiancé grows older and that's, you know, and hold off. But if you can't hold off, then, you know, use your judgment wisely. So the world that they live in is a lot of social pressure and not only that there's economic pressure because in the year that Paul is writing this letter in AD 51 there was severe famine in the land of Greek and all the all of Roman Empire so life is hard right life is hard it's hard to put food on the table tough to get a job even in city like Corinth so there's it's there's a toughness and a lot of pressure for like fathers because there was a lot expected of father in this world you had to raise up your child like man, bring food, you know, get status in the social class, and also pressure on social class. It mattered who you are, your background, what you know, um, who you know, right? What kind of job, how honored you are in the society. There were a lot of pressure. Who you are, like, are you Greek? Are you Jew? What do you show? And all of that. It was important, right? So the whole talk about circumcision. You know, it's about because in Greek world, you guys, you know, what do Greeks wear? Toga, right? Because, you know, they often get naked. Like, when they go exercise, like, if you were walked into Greek version of 24, everyone will be naked, right? <laughs> That's how they exercise. Like, you've seen, like, Greek statues and, you know, Olympic statues, and what are they? Are they wearing anything? No, they're wearing nothing. Not because of anything else, because that's how people were, Right? You go to bathhouse, you go to anywhere in the open space, like when we went to LA, some of the people that we went to wanted to go to Venice Beach, like the Muscle Beach, 
right? People work out outside in the open, in public, naked, right? So if you're circumcised or uncircumcised, it's kind of obvious, right? It's kind of obvious for you to hide. You can't hide if you show up. So there's a lot of pressure when people look at you. Oh, who are you? What's your social status? It's not many. It's not much different from our world, right? This time, are you? Do you guys live in a lot of pressure, social pressure, like what school you go to, what jobs you get? Even if you're like in preschool, I have a friend whose daughter's like two, not even two. He's worried about which preschool he's gonna put her in because it depends on what preschool she goes in, it'll guide and direct how she turns out. You know what high school she will end up and college and all of that and her job. There's a lot of pressure, you guys. And I think there's more pressure for you guys, especially in college and high school, now than it was when I lived, right? Because jobs are changing. The whole economy is shifting. Your jobs are uncertain. No one keeps the same job for more than two years. You know, startups go up, startups die. Money comes up, money you lose money. It's a lot of pressure. And you don't know, what do I study? Because your school, college is still catching up, playing a catch-up game. To the demand of the, you know, jobs, and there aren't enough jobs and counselors who know how to guide you and what jobs to get, how to be successful and all of that. There's a lot of pressure. There's a whole lot of economic pressure living in the city, San Francisco. You're getting kicked out in the mission. You're getting kicked out all over the city. I went to jury duty, and a judge said, the cases that he deals so many so often nowadays is, to, you know, issues about um, convictions, uh, evictions, because. So many people are kicking everybody out because of money issues. And it's hard to live in a city because the cost of living is so high. So your parents are pressured. Someone whose father, like me, there's a lot of pressure to survive in the city and provide for the city. And your identity too. Because we live in a you know, city that kind of drives whole identity in, this, you know, in, the, in the whole United States. You don't know who to be. You've got to either be really unique or... Be of everything, right? You gotta be gay, you gotta be hipster, you gotta be hillbilly, you gotta be, you know, gangster, you gotta be something, right? Or yuppie or startup guy, dot com guy. You gotta be something or you gotta be everything, right? You're pressured. Ethnically too, like you're Asians, you're Latinos or black, white. But then again, a bunch of us are all mixed. So you really don't get this ethnic identity. You don't really get it. So we're the same. There's a lot of pressure to live. And the decisions we need to make are critical, are important. Decisions about marriage is the most important, I tell you. If you are hoping and planning on getting married, you don't really have a choice in your parents, right? You don't get to choose who your parents are. That's sort of given to you. But you do choose who you will be for the rest of your life when you get married. So it's an important decision. But so are other decisions like what jobs to have, what schools to go to, which friends to make. All these steps are important. And what Paul is saying here is these are important decisions and you're struggling, but you're asking questions. But make decisions based on what you know in your faith of Jesus. That's what he's saying here. He's saying in verse... Um, Verse 17 says, However that may be, let each of you lead life that the Lord has assigned to which God called you. It's about call of God in faith 
not about your status in life. He said, don't be pressured about these things, who you're supposed to be, who you're supposed to marry, how you're supposed to show to the society. He's saying, don't feel pressure. He said, any of this stuff, social, cultural, ethnic, or any distinctions and status is nothing compared to the identity and the relationship we have in Jesus. He said, all Christians are brought together in one identity in Christ. He said, that's why he says, don't be anxious. And he says, learn and make decisions wisely. You know, go to people like Paul. You all have decisions you make in life, struggles and anxiety and you don't know what to do. Talk to people that are older who can guide you, help you. Who knows God, who's godly, who can tell you, this is what you should do um, to make good, good decisions. People who know God and fear God, who know that the commandments of God is the most important above all things. Don't go to like Kenya West to get advice over your life, right? You know, go to people who are wise, like Paul, who fear God, who know there's God who cares. So here's what our text teaches today. That who we are in Christ, which is revealed and redeemed on the cross, is enough and greater than anything else in the world. That's what Paul is saying. All these questions are good and important. But what's more important is who we are in Christ. That we know Jesus. So according to the life that Jesus has shown and the loving grace that God has shown through Jesus, that's how we live. And if you're Christians, you get this, but we still struggle. So we need to ask right questions and know that, that God... What we have in God is enough. If you're not Christians, some of this stuff doesn't make sense. You don't know what it is. But what if there's something better and greater than all the stuff that you struggle with? That God, who created you, offers a hope and joy and peace that you really, really seek. Uh, I look at, I read news and stuff, and I mark... Um, some other stuff, and a couple of years ago, maybe a year ago, there was an article in The Guardian, which is a newspaper in England, <laughs> uh, and a, a nurse uh, kept track of those people who died, and kept track and, and listed the regrets of the dying. And she listed top five regrets of dying. They t- sorry, they have actually a TED Talk, TED yeah? Talks for that. Yeah, yeah. so... Here are the regrets of people who are dying, right? Top five. And there there are, number one, I wish I had the courage to live life true to myself, not the life others expected of me. Number two, I wish I hadn't worked so hard. Number three, I wish I had courage to express my feelings. Number four, I wish I had stayed in touch with my friends. Number five, I wish that I had let myself be happier. I don't know about you, but when I read this, I see people who are pressured, who live life with a lot of pressure to please people, meet the pressure of the society. I had to be this. I had to work so hard to meet this. I had to be with these people instead of my friends. I I had to hold myself back instead of expressing my feelings because I had to please people and fit in and be respected and all of that. I see people in the world who lived with a lot of pressure, a lot of anxieties, 
and in the end they regretted it. Living for the world and the people with the pressure is just struggle and full of anxiety. And I think pleasing people, living this kind of life, just leads to you know, pointless, fruitless labor in life. But living in God's grace is freeing, it's joyous, it's full of hope, it's it's better life. It's not without trouble, but through troubles, you still find peace and joy, and that's what Paul is talking about here. We can live anxiety-free. Not pain-free, but anxiety-free. We can still find joy. We can find still find a way out. So it's my hope that you know all of us take these words of Paul. And I want to challenge that if you are a believer, if you know about the cross, go deeper. And when we hold on to the cross, we could live life anxiety-free because who we are in Christ is bigger than anything else. If you don't know the cross, if you are not a believer, I want to challenge you that Aren't you curious about this life that Paul is offering? This life the Bible says God, Jesus offers life and life to the fullest. That you can be pressure-free, anxiety-free, and you can be free. Let me pray. And we'll share the bread and the cup. Jesus, we admit and that we are afraid, that we struggle, if we're honest with ourselves, and we may have lots of regrets when we die. And uh, I pray that you would give us light into our soul, into our mind, that you made us and you took, you did the work to make us free so that our lives can be anxiety-free and pressure-free, that we can have joy no matter what we go through in life. And I pray that your spirit will open our mind and hearts to see that truth. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.